So last week we saw that Jesus is in Judea. The religious authorities, the Pharisees, are starting to stir things up. Rather than confront them at this stage, Jesus moves away because Jesus always moves away from religion towards lost people. And it says he had to go through Samaria. He's going from Judea or from Samaria to Judea. He had to go through Samaria. Technically, geographically, he did not have to go through. Samaria was a little strip of land in the middle. He could have went the coastal route one way. He could have went across the Jordan the other way. And that's what most good Jews did because the Samaritans and the Jews did not get along. There were centuries of sectarian conflict between them, something which we know nothing about. But they, you did not want to go through Samaria. And so when it says that Jesus had to go through Samaria, it wasn't that he physically or geographically had to. It was because there was this inner compulsion, this desire, this divine prompting within him that there was something that the Father wanted him to do. That Jesus lived in response to the Father. That Jesus lived in constant obedience to the Father. He got up in the morning and he said, Father, what do you want me to do today? The Father spoke to him and that's what he did. And so he starts traveling. And I didn't realize until I studied this week, from, from, from Samaria, or from, sorry, from Judea to The place where he meets this woman is 20 miles. It was a 20-mile journey that he made in one day. He gets there at noon. He probably set off around 6 a.m. That's why he's tired. That's why he's thirsty. It says he's tired, he's thirsty. I love the humanity of Jesus. I love that he can identify with us. I love that he knows our weaknesses. But he also, we see the humanity of Jesus, but we also see later the divinity of Jesus, that he knows everything about this woman, even though he's never met her before. We have this beautiful picture of John's gospel of the, the humanity of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus, that he wasn't just a man and he wasn't just God. He was the God-man come to earth. And he gets to this well and he sits down because he's thirsty. The other disciples, they've gone off to KFC or Tesco to get whatever they need to get. And Jesus is alone at this well. And this woman comes along and she is a Samaritan woman, we're told. And as we know already, Jews and Samaritans didn't get along. But this was even worse because she was a woman. And in this culture, rabbis and Pharisees and religious people didn't talk to women. There was actually a a group of people known as the, the bruised and bleeding rabbis. And the reason they were known, this is true, John MacArthur says this, and he's sound. John MacArthur said that they were known as the bruised and bleeding rabbis because when they saw a woman on the street, they would, even if it was their own wife, they would close their eyes and they would keep walking into things. That's the sort of religious culture. And yet Jesus is at the well and this woman comes along. Jesus gets there first and he waits. And that, that was something that stood out for me. Jesus waited for her. He was there first and then she came along. I'm so glad we have a Jesus that waits for us. That when we're not in the right place at the right time, he doesn't move on without us, but that he waits for us. He is patient. Our God is patient, longing that everyone should come to repentance. And we say, come Lord Jesus, we want the return of Jesus, but we also know that there are people who need Jesus. And our God is so patient. And he's waiting for her and she comes along. But the strange thing is that it's not the normal time when women go to the well. Going to the well to get water was a woman's work in those days. The men went out the fields in the morning 
to do the field work. The women all gathered at the well. It wasn't just a place where you got water. It was a meeting place. It was like Starbucks. They all gathered. They chatted. They caught up with each other. That's what you did at dusk and at dawn because it wasn't too hot then. But this woman isn't there at dusk or dawn. She's there at noon, at the, heat, at the hottest part of the day. Why? Because she's trying to avoid other women. She's trying to be uh, not seen. She's trying to isolate herself. She's trying to remain anonymous. Because when we read about her later, she's the sort of woman that other women don't like. Every man in the town likes her, it seems. But how many of us know that, that women that other men like generally aren't liked by other women? That's just a throwaway comment. But it's true. If you've got a girl that all the men like generally, the girls don't like her so much. And I'm going to keep moving. Um, so she is avoiding people. She's at the well. She has isolated herself. And Jesus comes along and he initiates a conversation. And what's one thing they have in common? It's water. That's the only thing. And I talked about last week how we have so much, we we can always find something in common with other people. No matter how radically different we are. Uh, Why don't we, and I said this last week, stop trying so hard to be a Christian and just start being a human. The world doesn't need to see your Christian credentials. It just needs to see your humanity. It needs to see your weakness. It needs to see your, your authenticity and your openness because people relate much more to our weaknesses and our realness than our strengths. And there's something within us as Christians that we're around people who don't believe what we believe. We always feel like we have to act perfect. They're not looking for perfection. They're just looking for honesty and authenticity. They're looking for people who are real and that they can connect to. And, uh, and, and, and share your life, the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's not about you being an expert, but it's about everyone every day, everywhere, who are followers of Jesus, living their life before people and sharing him with others. And we saw that people who are looking for Jesus don't normally look like they're looking for Jesus. They look like they're looking for water. They look like they're looking for relationships. They look like they're looking for comfort. They look like they're looking for a job. They look like they're looking for money. They look like your neighbor. They look like your work colleague. They look like your friend. People who are looking for Jesus generally don't look like they're looking for Jesus. This woman, she just looks like she's thirsty. And she is thirsty. She's been trying to satisfy her thirst in all the wrong places. And so Jesus asks her for a drink. I didn't realize this is actually the longest conversation that we see Jesus having with anybody in the Bible. Longer than a conversation with anybody who's religious. Longer than a conversation with anybody who's his disciple. This is the longest conversation Jesus has one-on-one with anyone in the Bible. And it is with a sinful Samaritan woman who most rabbis wouldn't speak to. But he has time for. Let's look at verses 9 to 14. Crossing boundaries. We have a lot to get through. My clock says 17 minutes left, so be prepared for it to sound like I'm speaking in tongues. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that is that is saying to you give me a drink you would have asked him and he would have given you living water the the woman said to him sir you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep where do you get 
this living water. Jesus asks her for something. He asks her for a drink. When Jesus asks us for something, it's not because he needs something from us. It's because he's got something greater to give us. Jesus doesn't need anything from you. When Jesus asks for your heart, when he asks for your obedience, when he asks for your holiness, when he asks for your, your, you, you to, to do what he said, it's not because he wants something from you, it's because he's got something greater to give you. And she is surprised because she's fully aware of the sectarian and religious divisions between them. You see, the Samaritans were seen as the Jews of being the lowest. And she's the lowest of the Samaritans in the Samaritans' eyes. So she's not just the low; she's the lowest of the lowest. And so she's surprised that this guy who's a rabbi would even speak to her, would even look at her, would even acknowledge her, would give her the time of day. Because she was looked down not only by Jews, but by her own community. Do you know, this is John chapter 4. And John chapter 4, for those of you who struggle with maths, comes after John chapter 3. And in John chapter 3, we have a familiar verse. In, in verse 16, for God so loved the world. And Jesus here for the first time is taking the gospel outside of a narrow religious Jewish society and bringing it to the world. When Jesus said God loved the world, it was easy for the disciples to go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But when he's standing with a Samaritan woman, it suddenly becomes real. God loves those who are different than us. God loves those who have different colors of skin, who have different backgrounds, who have different cultures, who eat different food, whose houses smell different than ours. God loves those who speak a different language to us. God loves those who are completely socially, racially, religiously different than us as much as he loves you. And Jesus died for them as much as he died for you. And in Acts 1-8, just before Jesus ascended to heaven, he said, I have given you power. Go and make disciples and uh, go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. That's where she's from. The very place that Jews didn't want to go to and to the ends of the earth. Jesus is already preempting that. He's in Samaria. She says to Jesus, but you have nothing to draw. You don't even have a bucket. I think she's being a bit annoyed with him at this stage. She's like, you know, you're telling me about water and you don't even have a bucket. And, 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 and she's telling Jesus what he doesn't have. You know, sometimes we do that. We tell God what he has and what he can and can't do. And she keeps putting up all these excuses and obstacles about why her and Jesus shouldn't be talking. And Jesus keeps pushing through them. As she keeps pushing Jesus away, Jesus keeps drawing closer. But here's the thing that I, I, I want us to see. That Jesus, or that women always felt safe around Jesus. The disciples are away. It's just this woman who... We don't know what her background is. We don't know if she is deliberately immoral or she has been abused and abused and used by men. We don't know. But we do know that her relationship with men hasn't been good. And here she is with Jesus and she feels safe with him. And that's what I love about Jesus. 
women felt safe with them, with him. Whenever there were other men attacking women, Jesus always stood in the middle. He stood in the gap. He always protected them. I teach my son, and he's five years old, I say our job is to protect women. Not because I am some domineering chauvinistic pig, but because I want him to grow up to be a gentleman. I want him to grow up to be a man who learns that you never, ever, ever mistreat a woman. That your job is to protect a woman, your job is to look after women, and anyone weaker and more, and, and more vulnerable than you in culture, you're the one who stands up for them. I found out the other day, he started preschool this week and some boy made some girl cry and Elijah ran over to the boy and made him apologize. And <laughs> honestly, and, and I'm teaching him all sorts of other stuff like if there's a bully, you tell him once to stop, twice you punch him in the nose. Um, that's what I'm, ta- I'm just being honest with you, that's what I'm teaching him because I want him to grow up to be a, a man who knows how to protect. And, and let's show how we... Let's show this wee video. It's a wee two-minute video, actually. I, I saw this during the week, and I, I literally just sprung up in mall. So let's hope it works. I thought it was quite powerful. The idea of running long distance was always considered, you know, very questionable for women because, you know, an arduous activity would, would mean that you're going to get big legs and grow a mustache and hair on your chest and your uterus was going to fall out. So I filled out the entry form. I signed my name with my initials. I signed K.V. Switzer. When I signed it that way, obviously when the form went in, they couldn't tell it from a guy's. The world's most famous foot race even attracts a leggy lady, Kay Switzer of Syracuse. So there we were with my coach, Arnie Briggs, and my boyfriend, an All-American football player, Tom Miller. When other runners would come by, they would say, oh, it's a girl. And they were so excited. And Arnie was saying, yep. I've trained her. And all of a sudden, the flatbed truck is in front of us, and I heard the photographer saying, slow down, slow down, slow down. And they're taking pictures of us. On this truck was the race directors. One of them was a feisty character by the name of Jock Semple. He just stopped the bus, jumped off, and ran after me. Suddenly I turned, and he just grabbed me and screamed at me, get the hell out of my race and give me those numbers. And then he started clawing at me, starting trying to rip my numbers off. And I was so surprised. And he had the fiercest face of any guy I'd ever seen, and, and out of control, really. Um, I was terrified. And all of a sudden, my boyfriend, Big Tom, gave Jock the most incredible crossbody block and sent Jock flying. And all of this happened in front of the press truck. The journalist got very aggressive. What are you trying to prove? You know, are you a suffragette? Are you a crusader? Whatever that is, you know. And I said, what? I'm just trying to run. I thought that was great. Big Tom. <laughs> Reminds me of Jesus so many times in the Gospels. They drag a woman in front of him who's been caught in adultery, and Jesus puts himself between her and her accusers. I just thought that was a lovely picture of, of just someone who, who understood what it's like to, to feel vulnerable, to be attacked, and yet someone steps in the middle and protects her. And that's what we see Jesus doing time and time again in the Gospels, that, that women felt safe around Jesus. And my prayer is that we would raise up a generation of men in this church, young men, older men, that women feel safe around, in a culture that uses and abuses women. And I am not a feminist, I want to tell you that, as 
feminism stands today, I find feminism as toxic as male chauvinism. Okay, so I am not a feminist. But I do believe that we are created equal in the image and likeness of God. We are created differently. And that our job as men is to lift up and elevate women, to promote them, and to to let them step into their God-given roles, to protect and provide, and to make sure that as men we we show a, a culture that uses and abuses and sexualizes women what it means to be a man of God, what it means to treat women with honor and dignity and respect. That was a freebie for you this morning, but please do take heed of it. So Jesus moves the conversation from natural to spiritual. He's starting to talk about water and then he starts to talk about living water. And at some point in our own relationships, we've got to move beyond the superficial We've got to move beyond talking about the weather and what you did at the weekend and the football to actually things that really matter. And so he, 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 he uses a natural metaphor of water and he starts to talk about things that, that really matter. Look at verses 13 to 15. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come uh, here to draw water. He's speaking about her life. He's speaking prophetically. And he's saying, look, you're always thirsty. And she's saying, yeah, I have to keep coming back to drink. And it's a prophetic image that she's, she's not just physically thirsty, she's, she's spiritually thirsty. She's, she's, she's been trying to quench and satisfy her thirst with relationships and with fake intimacy with men. And yet after all that she's done, after all that she has given of herself, she is still if not more empty than ever. She's trying to find spiritual and soul fulfillment through physical pleasure. You know, we're whole people. We can't separate our, our parts. We're, 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 we're body, we're soul, we're mind, we're will, we're emotions, we're spirit. And whatever we do with one part of that affects the other parts. Whatever we do with our body affects our soul. Whatever we do with our soul affects our health. Whatever we do with our spirit. And so she's tried to use her body to fill a spiritual vacuum and it it hasn't worked. And we try to fill and satisfy spiritual hunger with sex and money and work and fame and drugs and sports and possessions. And when you're dissatisfied, and I've noticed this at times in my own life, when you're dissatisfied here's what you do you go from place to place and from person to person trying to find satisfaction you always think if you just move somewhere else then you'll be happy or if you just meet someone else then you'll be happy if you just have a different relationship another relationship. If you move to a different town, a different house, then you'll be happy. And people who move and move and move and move and move and move and move. And what I've discovered is that that moving never satisfies because they're trying to fill a longing which no place or no person can fill. And they end up more empty and desperate. And so she keeps focusing on what separates them. 
she, and, and, and she keeps saying, well, you know, we're different. And, and, and Jesus keeps moving closer. Jesus is at this well and, and he is the well. And she is spiritually thirsty and he knows that he can satisfy that. So he goes deeper. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you are with now is not your husband. What you have said is true. I heard a story about a couple who were getting married and they wanted a Bible verse on their wedding cake. And they wanted the verse 1 John 4, 18. And 1 John 4, 18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. And so they phoned the bakery and they said, We want 1 John 4, 18. And they said, No problem. But the woman took it down wrong. And the bakery phoned them back and said, Are you sure you want that verse? And they said, Yes, we want 1 John 4, 18. And, and the person wasn't really listening. And in the end, they, instead of 1 John 4, 18, they wrote John 4, 18, which is, You have yet five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. Jesus says to her, go call your husband. I think at this stage she had started to walk away. She had started to disengage. It was all getting a little bit uncomfortable. And so Jesus Jesus goes deeper. Jesus decides it's time for a little bit of spiritual surgery. He takes out his spiritual scalpel and he says, go call your husband. And she stops. And she says, I, I have no husband. Is that the truth? Yes. Is it the whole truth? No. It's the truth right now. She has no husband. Sometimes I've found that with people. They tell you the truth, but it's not the whole truth and nothing but the truth. When you're counselling people, I always find when you're, you're dealing with real issues with people, they tell you 80 to 90% of the truth. Just enough to make them look a little bit bad, but not really bad. And I very often will say to somebody, tell me the last 5%. When they've done something wrong, maybe there's been immorality, maybe there's been an affair, maybe something has happened. They tell you enough to make you think that they're being really honest and vulnerable. We all do that. We self-protect. And I always say, tell me the last 5%. Tell me the bit you're not telling me, and then the truth comes out. And this woman, she, she says, I, I don't have any husband. And Jesus says, you're right. You don't. You've had five of them and the guy you're shacked up with right now, well, he's not your husband and that gets her attention. You know, this is a woman who, if she was on Facebook, her relationship status would always be, it's complicated. If she was on Instagram, she would have 6,000 male followers and no female followers. She was one of those women. And Jesus confronts her with the truth, not to rub it in, but to rub it out. He's not trying to rub anything in, he just wants to rub it out. He exposes her pain, not to hurt, but to heal. You see, before we acknowledge our need for a saviour, we need to be convinced that we're a sinner. No conviction, no conversion. 
And as Christians and as a church in 2018, here's one of my concerns, is that we sell all the benefits of Jesus like he's a really good add-on and product to, to, to enhance your life. We, we sell that he brings peace and joy and, and fulfillment and purpose and eternal life. And all of that is true. But ultimately, the reason we need Jesus is not because he's a life enhancement, but because he is life. Because he's the saviour from our sins. And because without him, we are on wrong standing with a holy God who created us to know and love him. And apart from Jesus, we are separated from a holy God from now and for eternity. Jesus is not just some life enhancement. He is my saviour. And until I realise that I am a sinner in need of a saviour, I will never fully appreciate what he did on the cross when he gave himself for me. I am a great sinner. That is the truth. He is a great saviour. That is a greater truth. And Jesus confronts her with the truth, but it's truth with tenderness. That's something we need to understand in Northern Ireland because we're all about the truth sometimes, but we're not so good at the tenderness part. We're not so good at the grace part. He confronts her with truth, but he doesn't do it to condemn her or judge her. He does it to heal her. Because she's been through five divorces. I don't know about... I know some of you have been through divorces. I know some of you have been through different... One divorce takes its toll. The Bible talks in Psalm 34 about being brokenhearted and contrite in heart. You know, one divorce makes you brokenhearted. One man or woman who you thought you would spend the rest of your life with, who you're no longer with, that leaves you brokenhearted. This woman's been through five. And so Jesus' job here is not to make her feel worse. It's to bring healing and wholeness into her life. Jesus is not ashamed of her shame. He's, he's more focused on her future than he is about dragging up her past. And in today's sexually immoral culture where there's so much deviance, so many things that the church can condemn, there is so much immorality around us, it is so easy to point the finger and to condemn and, to, and, to, and just to Bible bash people. I want to say to you that those who are sexually immoral are sexually broken. And they are looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places. They're drinking from all the wrong wells. They're filling all the wrong buckets and they're empty. And our job as a church is not to condemn our culture, but to bring the love of Jesus to our culture in a compassionate and tender way and tell them that God has more for you. So this woman is getting uncomfortable, so she decides to go down some religious rabbit trails. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. Uh, so the, 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 the Samaritans built their own temple because the Jews didn't want them in, on, on their temple. But you said that in Jerusalem is the place we ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. The Father is seeking worshippers. The Father is seeking true worshippers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I speak. I who speak to you am he. 
She starts getting all religious. I, I just find this funny. Suddenly this woman who has lived this immoral life starts getting all religious because she's trying to back off from the uncomfortableness of the conversation. And sometimes I find that people get hyper-spiritual, particularly around me. People somehow think because I'm a pastor, minister, vicar, whatever it is, that the more spiritual they sound around me, the more I'll be impressed by them. That makes me really uncomfortable, folks. I just want you to be normal. And, and, you know, like it's like every conversation is, and the Lord just spoke to me and the angel Gabriel show. And I'm just like, come on. Like, seriously? I just had my cornflakes. Uh, like, like, but there is, there's this hyper spirituality. And I always think, you know, what is it covering up? There is something that you're trying to cover up with your hyper-spiritual words. And this woman is trying to cover up her immorality. And I've heard some of the most smooth-sounding, hyper-spiritual people who could talk any girl into bed. But they've got the hyper-spiritual language. And they've got all the right phrases. And they've been around church long enough. And they know all the right things to say. And yet behind their scenes... Their lives do not back it up. I have known some hyper-spiritual people who are the most sectarian, bigoted, racist, hateful people I have ever met. Never judge somebody by their hyper-spiritual language. She gets all caught up about worship and where we worship and how we worship and the place we worship. And Jesus says, stop. It's Jesus' time. Those of you who listen to MC Hammer will have got that. Stop. Stop talking about where you worship and how you worship. God doesn't care about the place. He doesn't care about the form. He doesn't care about the ritual. He doesn't even care about the drums. He doesn't care about how loud the volume is or whether the lights are on or off or whether you use screens or hymn books or whether you sing songs from the 18th century or the 21st. God doesn't care about that stuff. All he cares about is that you worship in spirit and in truth. In other words, it is not the ritual or the form, it is your heart that matters. That's what Jesus says. He cuts her off. He says, stop getting caught up in the religious rubbish. Sometimes I think I'd love us to have a nice church building. Like this church is, we've done a great job, but it's not a pretty building. Let's be honest. Like it's not a building that's going to win any architectural awards, you know. And, and, but you know what? This building is not the church. You are the church. Every person in this room, if you know Jesus, if you love Jesus, you are the church. If we met in the middle of a field today, it would be the church. It is not about the building. I love nice buildings. I love good buildings. I'm praying that God blesses us with a better building. But ultimately, this is not about a building. It is about a community of people who love Jesus, who gather to worship him, exalt him, and share him with others. That is the church. And she gets caught up with all this other stuff because she's trying to deflect from the real issue in her life. It's getting uncomfortable. Jesus is getting too close. And that's what happens when the, in, in our own lives and in others' lives. When it gets uncomfortable, Comfortable. When, when, when religious people start getting confronted with Jesus, they start bringing up all sorts of issues. When non-Christians start getting confronted with Jesus, suddenly they start talking about creation. And is the Bible really real? And was it really six days? And, and, and other religions. And you know what they're doing? They're just deflecting. 
And we go down these rabbit trails and we spend six months researching, you know, creation. And we come to them at the end and, and they don't care. Because that's never the issue. Yes, we should have a reason for what we believe. And yes, Christianity does stand in its intellectual merits. But ultimately, nobody gets converted unless Jesus transforms their heart. And sometimes I say to people, if I answer all your questions, will you become a Christian? And the answer is always no. Because it is not just a head decision. It is a heart transformation that the Holy Spirit transforms a heart. And Jesus says to her, because she's putting off, she's saying, one day the Messiah is coming. She's saying, one day, someday. She's putting off her faith. And that's what people do. They always say, someday I'll follow Jesus. Maybe when I get older. Maybe when things are better. Maybe da, 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 da. And Jesus says, not someday, today. I am he. I am the one you're looking for. I am the the one who will satisfy your longing. I am the one that you've been trying to fill your soul with, with sleeping with man after man after man. I am the one who will bring peace and life and joy. I am the source of what you're searching for. John Piper says this, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That's a good quote. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. When you find your deepest satisfaction in God, God is glorified in you because you don't go to other wells. You drink from him. And in this story, we see the thirsty becomes a well. We're nearly there. And I know him over time. Just then, nothing unusual. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking to a woman. But no one said, what do you seek her? Why are you talking with her? I can just imagine Peter just dying to ask. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. The disciples return and they're confused, but they keep it to themselves. Sometimes it's better just to not question God and just do what he says. And the woman has left her jar. Do you notice that? So the woman left her jar and went away. Who she had met became more important than what she had come to get. She came there for water, but meeting Jesus was more important than why she had come. And she went into town. She goes back to her hometown and she starts looking for people to tell. And I find this amazing. Because why was she at the well at noon? Because she was trying to hide. She was trying to isolate herself. She was full of shame. And yet she goes back into the middle of town and she starts looking for people. I've never noticed that before. The woman who tried to hide herself from everyone is now going knocking doors. Why? Because her shame is gone. Jesus has lifted her shame. Jesus has cleaned her. Jesus has cleansed her. Jesus has elevated her. He has given her dignity. He has given her purpose. He has given her respect. He has made her clean. He has shown her that she is more precious than any man has ever shown her in her life. Every man tried to take something from her. Jesus just wanted to give something to her. And she says, come and see a man. And you can imagine every person She goes into town, come see a man, and they're like, not another one. Like, seriously, you can imagine this woman, five husbands living up with another guy. Come see a man, oh my goodness, here she goes again. Come see a man, it gets worse, come see a man who told me everything I ever knew. And they're thinking, flip, 50 shades of Samaria wouldn't fill everything you've ever done. 
Like seriously, what sort of conversation was that? We know most of what you've done and we don't talk about it in public. And this man's telling you everything you've ever done. I don't think he knows that much. I met a man from Galilee. And if you trust in him, he'll set you free. And she says, come and see. Come and meet him. Come and meet a man. Not, not like all the other men in my life. Come and meet a man. And the thirsty had become a source of water. And you know, people with the most notorious backgrounds sometimes become the greatest evangelists in their community. I have a friend called Ran Lennon who lives in the Causeway Coast. He's on staff at the church we were working in last year. And Ran was a bad egg. He was a known drug dealer throughout the town. He actually was interviewed at the Big Alpha Conference by Nicky Gumbel just a few months ago on stage with the policeman who used to put him in jail. Honestly, the policeman's standing there in his PSNI uniform and Ran Lennon standing beside him. It might be online. And, uh, and the policeman's a Christian and, and he's just talking about Ryan's life. And Ryan has now led, dear knows, countless people to Jesus because they all know him. He's the guy who used to sell them drugs. And Ryan and his, and his wife, Sarah, I'll bring, I want, they're going to come down here September, October. They'll share their story. They're, they're, they're kids. They have a story, but they can reach people I will never reach. And you can reach people I will never reach because your story will connect with people in a way that mine never will. Grace flows to us so it can flow through us. Let's keep going. We're done now. Meanwhile, that's just giving you hope. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And the disciples said to one another, has anyone been to McDonald's while we were at KFC? Jesus said to them, that's the New Living Translation, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white. The disciples, all they can think about is a meal. And Jesus, he's focused on the mission. And what's his mission? Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. They're thinking about themselves and Jesus is thinking about the lost. They're thinking about a meal and Jesus is focused on a mission. Why? Because that's why he's here. He says, that's the food that satisfies me. The food that satisfies me is not having sandwiches with you guys. It is seeing lost people come into the kingdom of God. And you know what the meal is? The meal represents my needs, my desires, my preferences, my feelings. But his mission is to reach lost people. And our church needs to be really careful that we don't get focused on on the meal and ignore the mission. That we don't get focused on my needs, my preferences, my desires, my wants, and ignore the fields that are white for harvest out there. Our church does not exist to meet our needs, but to fulfill his mission. And you know what? The harvest is only a problem when you aren't able to increase the capacity to reap it. That's a word for us. The harvest is only a problem when we don't have the capacity to contain it. And so we need to increase our capacity. The fields are white. And in those days when the fields are white, the the grain turned white amber sort of color. And Jesus says, look, the fields are white. And as they're looking out, who's coming towards them? The Samaritans from the village. And in those days, they wore white gowns. And so there's this picture of Jesus says, look at the fields. The fields are white and there's these white 
people, these people in white robes walking towards him. And the disciples are going, I can't see the fields because those stupid Samaritans are in the way. And, and Jesus said, no, the fields are, no, no, no. I know what you're saying, Jesus. But if those Samaritans would get out of the way, we'd be able to see the harvest. And Jesus is saying, no, the fields are away. I know, Jesus, but those stinking, horrible Samaritans, like they're always annoying us. The Samaritans are in the way. If they would get out of the way, we'd be able to see the white fields. Sometimes what I call a problem, God calls a harvest. And sometimes the harvest doesn't look like what I wanted or expected. I believe this church is going to reach people that we never thought we would reach. That there's going to be people coming here and we're going to be thinking, goodness, how did you end up here? I, I, I don't know why. I'm not trying to be con. I believe that one day we're going to have more people from a Roman Catholic background in this church than from a Protestant background. And you know what? That's what happened to us in Dublin. 60 to 70% of our church in Dublin was from a Roman Catholic background. And they didn't become Protestants, they became followers of Jesus. And if you're a Protestant, you're welcome. And if you're a Catholic, you're welcome. But ultimately, being a Protestant or a Catholic, neither of them saved you. Jesus Christ saved you. And he died on the cross 2,000 years ago. And the harvest is ready. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. That's the only place that Jesus stayed for two days to speak to people about himself. And many more believed because of what... Sorry, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Jesus wanted to preach to the city, but he first of all had to reach a single woman. Jesus wanted to reach the city, but he first had to reach a woman. Because you see, cities and communities and towns and villages are not transformed en masse. They're transformed one life at a time. And as one person meets Jesus, they share Jesus and they share Jesus, and they share Jesus, and it creates a, a momentum. And this woman, the most unlikely of people, became one of the greatest evangelists in the New Testament. Her history was covered up by his story. I finish with a story. I always like to finish with a story. For friend Andrew McCourt... Andy McCourt. Andy planted a, a church in Derry. I know what some of you are thinking. He just said Derry. I know what you're like. I was brought up in Portadown. I did say my dad was in Grumgrey earlier, so I'm just going to offend everybody in the room, whatever your background you're from. And the only people who don't call it Derry, everybody who lives in Derry calls it Derry, apart from Gregory Campbell. Okay? Um, but, but Andy planted a church in Derry years ago. And uh, a woman came along who was from a, a Catholic background. Um, her name was Concepta because she was named after the Immaculate Conception. That's the sort of background she was from. Septa, they called her. And Septa, he says, was short-sighted. And she would drive, you know, like one, you know, you know those people who like are right up at the windscreen and they're squinting. 
She was one of those people, and she drove, and, and she was driving in, in, in Derry one day, and she's driving along, and it's raining, and, and, and she's, she's just praying and driving, and, and, and she sees a, a young family walking along the side of the road, and she knows immediately from the color of their skin that they're not local, and there's a husband and a wife and a little daughter, and they're carrying shopping bags, and it's pouring rain, and as she drives past them, she says, oh, Lord, bless them. Just, Lord, just bless our wee family, and the Lord says, why don't you bless them? And she's thinking, I just want to get home. And she, and she feels the Lord saying, why don't you bless them? So she hand breaks it and slides across the dashboard and, you know, and, and, and turns around and goes back. And, 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 and she, she, she says, to, it turns out they're from Iran. And uh, she said to them, um, do you want a lift? Which... She's a strong woman, apparently. And when she said it, it wasn't so much a question as a, a, you know, a demand. Like they thought maybe they were getting kidnapped. Um, she said, do you want a lift? And they get in the car and they didn't know much English, but she knew enough English to keep talking for the whole journey. And, and they got to the, their house. And, and before they got out, she said, would you like to come to lunch on Sunday? And again, before they could answer, she said, brilliant, I'll pick you up at 10 o'clock. And they said, 10 o'clock lunch? And she said, yeah, uh, before we go to lunch, we always go to church. And they said, okay, they didn't have much choice. Ten o'clock, pick, her up, pick the family up, bring them to church. And uh, a few months later, just the relationship continues to grow and develop. And a few months later, Sept is talking to the mom of the Iranian family, Miriam. And, and she says, look, I have to tell you what happened that day. I was driving along, and I didn't want to stop, she said. I drove past you as a family, and I just wanted to go on. But she said, I felt God telling me to stop. And Miriam starts crying and bawling her eyes out. And Sept is a, a bit like, what's going on? And I didn't, you know, I'm not trying to Bible bash you. And, and Miriam says, you don't understand. That day we were walking along, just my husband and my little daughter and I, and, and it was raining. And we had just arrived in this country and we knew nobody. We were lonely. We were isolated. People avoided us. We felt like such outsiders. We were getting soaked. We had no car. And I just said, God, if you're there, send somebody along to help us. And you pulled up and you offered us a lift. And that whole family came to Christ. And Andrew talks about one Sunday morning looking out in his church. And there were 45 people from the nation of Iran in that service, all because one woman was obedient, one woman was willing to be inconvenienced, and one woman decided to listen to the voice of Jesus. You are a well. Let me just finish with this one verse. Next slide there. Jesus said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So you come to Jesus and drink, and then you become the fountain. You become the well. Let's pray that Jesus makes hope church, makes everybody here, not just a recipient of his mercy and grace and water and spirit, but that we become conduits, we become rivers that flow out into this community.